Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS Kids. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. This week, we're excited to talk with leadership expert and award-winning author, Tim Schneider, about the Great Resignation and its impact on the world of applied behavior analysis, or ABA therapy, and other autism services. I'll set the stage before we dive in. Um, Applied behavior analysis is the most commonly prescribed treatment for autism spectrum disorder. ABA helps children with autism learn new skills that might include communication skills, daily living skills, social skills, and, and many more life functional skills. ABA is not a one-size-fits-all treatment. It's a very difficult treatment, and each program is specially designed to suit the needs of an individual child. Every child has a team of behavior analysts and often multiple behavior technicians that provide the day-to-day and one-on-one therapy. This team is critical to the care. The consistency, the intensity is very important for providing the best prognosis for every child that's receiving the care. But the job of the technician, or the behavior technician, is incredibly rewarding, but is also one of the most challenging jobs that anybody is gonna walk into. This is the position that right now we're seeing the highest turnover rate and is most impacted by this great resignation. Each time a behavior technician leaves a child's case, the child faces the possibility of losing valuable weekly prescribed hours, consistency, a a friend, somebody who they're used to having in part of their life, and they're not getting the prescribed hours of ABA therapy. So what are ABA organizations doing? What can parents do if they find they're losing their behavior technicians? I'm excited to pick Tim's brain and learn more. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Jeff, thank you so much. It is absolutely my pleasure to be with you. It's uh, tremendous to reconnect with you and talk about such an incredibly important subject as well. And one that not only our team can have an impact on, but also one where our parent partners can have an impact on as well. I I couldn't agree more. And I think that I'd love to give a a little bit of a snippet of who Tim Schneider is to our audience first. So let's get to know you a little bit better. I know that you specialize in leadership. Um, We've had that firsthand experience at ABS of being able to have a variety of our employees get that training from you. But you're also writing books and uh, providing keynote speeches. So what brought you into this passion of trying to empower leaders across industries? You know what, Jeff, I have been, uh, you know, for as long as I can remember, which, you know, some days is about as good as what I had for breakfast. But, you know, I have always been passionate about leadership. I've always been passionate about the behavioral science associated with leadership, the management science associated with leadership. And the one thing that always gets me, you know, most kind of fired up in working with leaders at all levels of an organization is the fact that they have such tremendous ability to have positive impact 
on the lives of their team members, and ultimately on the lives of their clients and customers as well. And it, it feels as if this great resignation rests on the shoulders of leaders. Navigating COVID rested on the shoulders of strong leaders. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna preface this question with just some some data that I was looking at recently. Is so looking at the job force right now. COVID had an impact. It had an impact on specific industries. A lot of those are the ones that are critical people industries, healthcare, human service. Um, you've seen it in retail and in restaurants, but it's hitting more in those very individualized healthcare businesses. So why? Why did COVID push us here? You know, Jeff, that, that is such an interesting question. We could probably fill up you know, easily 30 minutes uh, just on its own. COVID was, and the associated lockdowns were just an absolute perfect storm. You know, it created uncertainty in the minds of our team members on whether they would have a job again. You know, there were periods of close downs. Some organizations, certainly not yours, but some organizations uh, had layoffs. Uh, there were gaps of employment. The other part of the perfect storm is there was a significant incentive applied to not get back in to the working world, which, you know, kind of takes us from, you know, February of 20 through August of uh, 21. There was a pretty significant incentive out there to plain and simply, and I, I, I don't know any other way to say it, but not work just plain and simply not work. And a lot of people took that time to reevaluate what they wanted to do. A lot of people uh, took that time to really kind of think about what kind of organization they wanted to work with. A lot of people relocated. It really was a perfect storm of so many factors. And, you know, unfortunately, as leaders, we can certainly control what we do and what we say, but there were a lot during this uh, pandemic and the lockdowns, there was a lot outside of our control here too. When you look at the trends of those industries that are most affected, I mean, overall you have 4.3 million Americans quitting their jobs. But the one thing that that is most interesting to me is that as people have been returning, they're not necessarily returning into the same fields. It's almost like different job types have increased, whether it's the ones with more freedom in them, more autonomy. Uh, delivery of healthcare is not necessarily one where you can choose whether or not you want to be there to participate. It's it's you have to be there in person for most jobs. Is this a are there specific trends that you're seeing that lead to uh, more of a challenge of a return of a workforce in an industry? Yeah, those those employers and those industry sets that are able, uh, by the nature of the work they do, to offer flexibility to their team members, you know, i.e. work at home options, i.e. flexible, flexible scheduling, uh, they're experiencing far less of the great re resignation as compared to some of the traditional industry sets that includes yours, that includes the rest of the healthcare macro segment, that includes things like manufacturing and things like that, that you know, you plain and simply can't do in your kitchen, in your bathrobe. Uh, those industry segments are the ones that are having the hardest time recovering, uh, that the hospitality industry, the uh, uh, food and beverage industries, uh, those two, because they are an in-person component, uh, 
they're the ones that are getting hit by far and away the hardest. People felt, first of all, when the pandemic first hit and lockdown first occurred, people struggled at working at home. Then they got used to it. Then they liked it. And now tons of them really, really like it. And when we say it's time to go back to the office, it's time to go back to the, the practice, boy, I tell you what, they're not coming back. But there, there must always be factors that a, a good leader can do to be able to reinvigorate the workforce that, that needs to return. You can't go without healthcare. You can't go without these critical positions. So when you're talking about establishing culture and creating um, more autonomy, more choice, or more participation in the decision-making, what are some of the things that you're seeing good leaders do right now to be able to recreate that workforce the way that that workforce is now feeling is important to them and with their values in mind. You hit on a couple of really big important ones there, Jeff, and and you could not be more right. Even though these factors are occurring out there, we as individual leaders still have some tools in our toolkit to minimize the impact of this great resignation. Uh, One of the primary ones is to invest the time into building solid relationships and rapport with our team members, you know, truly getting to know them. You know, understanding who they are, not just, you know, it's Jeff and he shows up on Tuesday and, you know, but really understanding about them, their their family status, what they do outside of work, things that are important to them. One of the other primary tools that we encourage leaders to use is a lot of and up to and including an uncomfortable level of appreciation and positive feedback. You know, ultimately, our team members want to be connected. They want to be appreciated. And the one that you hit on, which was such a huge piece, is create an environment where our leaders are not telling. Our leaders are asking. They are seeking input that it becomes much more of a self-directed. And in the healthcare field, we do have the opportunity to implement a lot of that where it comes to things like scheduling and caseloads and things like that, but allowing it to be a self-directed input-based model, you know, rather than that traditional kind of arcane model of the leader just saying, you're going here and you're going there, that leads to some of that turnover and some of that loss of talent. So when you're giving this this participation, this voice, this ability to say, this is what I need to do my job well, there's there's an it always seems to me like there's always another component to that as far as the transparency to that decision-making process, because you're not going to be able to do everything everybody wants in an organization all the time. So as a, as a leader, how does one go about making this not a dictatorial decision and demonstrate that the voice is occurring? Are there techniques that leaders should be looking at to be able to do that? Uh, yeah, absolutely, Jeff. And and it's quite simply, some of it is pretty painfully simple. It's it's about adding the phrase, what do you think, uh, as, as a leader, you know, rather than me telling you the way it's going to be, but just simply saying, what do you think? Uh, tell me how we can cover this. We have 17 clients in this geographic area. Uh, help me. Tell me how how we can get get through this. You know, rather than me carving it up, how about how about you sit down and we carve it up together? Uh, you know, let's make sure our our customers, our clients, our our patients are receiving the best possible care. Help me with that. 
You know, it's language like that that becomes the language of enjoyment and not the language of that dictatorial or hierarchical kind of leadership. And that demonstrates a lot of irony in the fact that probably great leaders can go across industries pretty seamlessly if they're heeding that advice, if they're actually using the people who are out there on a regular basis, applying whatever it is that needs to be done out in day-to-day -day life or in the operations and are listening to them is that a good leader can actually probably easily be agile enough to be able to work across healthcare or engineering or I mean, whatever industry they might be in. Do you find that often that the same traits are occurring across the same leader set? Uh, you know, that's very astute, Jeff. Uh, dictatorial leaders tend to be isolated within a pretty narrow industry set because they vest all of their authority and kind of expert power about knowing about that industry, while really good leaders are incredibly portable. Uh, you know, because the skill sets and the competencies associated with outstanding leadership, they can cross those lines between manufacturing and service sector and healthcare sector and all those things. And it really doesn't rely on a tremendous amount of expert power to pull that off. No, and uh, it, it is something that, you know, you think logically, yeah, those are the skill sets. They are the ones that are readily there. But at a time of crisis, it's oftentimes hard to maintain that consistency of knowing how to navigate. Yet a lot of people stumble on the way. You would well, and, and pardon me, Jeff, and, and so many leaders, too, so many leaders, that's such a foreign functionality to them that they really have to work on it for an extended period of time to make it just absolutely a habitual kind of skill set, if you will. And with that skill set, it, it actually... It, I look at our field and ABA specifically, you're talking about the hardest job being done at any ABA company is the one that is oftentimes the, the least financially resourced as far as people aren't earning as much of that position. They are not getting the day-to-day -day impact because the kids don't develop the skills within hours. They develop them within months at times. So how do you prevent the burnout while still establishing this positive culture of contribution? Where, do the, where does the balancing of the scale happen so that you are giving enough of that positive feedback that you mentioned to cease the burnout in a job that sometimes is, it's hard and you're not going to feel great at the end of every day? You know, that that particular question, I think, really cuts at the substance of why we're together, too, today, because, you know, it, it, indeed, an organization and individual leaders within that have the ability to, uh, you know, influence uh, through the positive feedback and through the relationship depth that they create through creating an environment of input and collaboration and partnership. But you know what? In your world, it offers such an interesting second dynamic. And it also holds true in areas like food service, a little bit in hospitality and other customer facing areas, is that when we can also make our clients partners in this process of holding on to our behavioral therapist, that's where we're going to see the real magic involved. Because not only should it be the leaders providing positive feedback and the leaders building good rapport, but you know what? 
our clients should be doing the same thing. And in, in your particular case, it's clients' parents should be doing the same thing. You know, when they offer the praise and the appreciation, when they spend a little bit of time to know something about that behavioral therapist, that becomes a secondary powerful reinforcement that can really connect some of these people in a powerful, powerful way, way beyond what money could ever do and way beyond with what you know, just an individual leader could do too. When our parents can join in this process uh, with us, man, that would, that's where the real power comes from. And I, I'm hearing as, as you're describing this, I'm hearing that, you know, there's obviously those barriers that need to be broken down to be able to create almost like a treatment family going up from that family to the therapist, to the leadership, where everybody understands common goals that we're all in it together, that we're all going to see the highs and lows together, and that we need to have that communication going. But I think that one thing that the field has missed out on is being able to be transparent enough with the gains, but then also with the challenges, is to say, yes, we have real challenges from time to time. Let's work on these together. Is that is there specific things when you're bringing a family into it and you're trying to empower the parent to also be a contributor to the culture of a team? How do you do that? Because you don't have control of the, uh, you don't have that that control of the structure of the home environment in the way that you would in an office environment. Is there is there any specific way that people would approach that differently? Yeah, to to connect a customer, client, uh, patient, family, stakeholder. Simply what we need to do is lay out, and I love your phrase about transparency, Jeff, but we need to be very transparent there. This therapist is going to be one of the most important people in your child's life for X amount of time, X hours a week, X times a week. Now, what we need to do is we need together to treat him like he is a valuable part of your family. And that includes things like getting to know her or him, uh, telling her or him when they have done a great job and when, you know, the child is responding, but to partner with them and by showing them what's in it for them. Because, and you described it in the opening segment really, really well, you know, the, the child can experience some pretty significant losses when there is turnover in their immediate therapist. So when we can tell the parent, look, here's the, here's the jeopardy, here's the risk that occurs if our therapist leaves. So we're going to count on you to help us make sure that that doesn't happen with her or him. I, I totally appreciate everything that you just described there, because it, when I look at the parent role from my perspective, it would be is that the parent is part of that consistency. If that behavior technician who is pouring their their heart into their job, they don't do this job for the financial gain. They're doing it because this is something that really makes me feel good about my contribution to the world. So when they're doing that, and they're seeing maybe it's cancellations or they're seeing um, uh, inherent expectations that can't be met or a lack of participation by the family, is that it's hard to continue to have that intrinsic motivation because you feel like you're on an island. So not only do the leaders of the company and every support staff of the company have to rally around the behavior technician, but the family has to provide that same level of consistency because they will end up leaving their job if they don't maintain their hours, if they don't have that regular access to see progress 
with their patient because their patient has minimal hours. So what you're saying, it, it hits home to me because I'm seeing it on a regular basis. Um, so what can ABA companies do? What are those What are those things outside of, you described some, some cultural changes that need to be made. What are some ways to actually implement that or procedurally get that into play so that you have retention of the most important staff on your team? You know, to the line level behavioral technicians, the most important person in any organization is going to be their immediate supervisor. You know, regardless of a board of directors and, you know, senior level leaders and, and, and all that stuff, the most important person is that immediate supervisor. When he or she is delivering that positive feedback, building the, the uh, rapport with them, I got to tell you, that is, I don't believe in a lot of silver bullets or magic wands, but that is about as close organizationally as it can happen. Now, along with that, we do need to take care of those supervisors too. Uh, you know, and there needs to be some cascade effect that goes down. But when our supervisors and, and you know, those, those folks that are handling the day-to-day -day scheduling, the day-to-day -day little challenges and issues, when they become, when they make that move into a real leadership kind of functionality, that's where the magic happens, Jeff. And it's a, it's almost a sad state of affairs because when you look at a BCBA coming out of their program, those are not the skills that are taught to them in their program. And it takes the investment of a company to say, I'm gonna teach you all these managerial leadership skills because that's 70% of your job is being able to effectively guide the team that's under you and create that unit. Um, hopefully, eventually the industry will change and BCBAs will come out of their academic programs with some of these skills, but that doesn't exist. Um, and, and I think that is one thing that is going to have to inherently change over time for us to really have an industry that's gonna thrive on that model that you're describing. So you're seeing it where you're seeing the trickle of employment back in specific industries. You're seeing the workforce start to return. Some of the incentives that you described are slowly dwindling. When is this change going to happen for these critical service industries? You know, there's um, the best information that we have been able to glean out there from uh, some of our customers and some of our other partners is that a fuller recovery will be the first quarter of next year. Now, there's one wild card out there that right now is kind of pushing down a little bit uh, the recovery speed, and that is in many, many industries. Uh, certainly, healthcare is one of them. Uh, vaccine mandates have added an additional layer of, you know, people that for whatever choices uh, do not want to come back to work or do not want to work with that particular uh, uh, mandate uh, kind of thing. Uh, there is a two-tiered wave of mandates that are hitting today, uh, November 1st, and then also December 1st that will have some pretty significant changes in overall employment. You know, the one thing that separates this cycle from any other that I've been around in my lifetime is for the very, very first time, this has also affected key critical industries like yours, like healthcare, and the one that just is so odd to me, public sector employment is also affected for the very first time in any kind of downturn that I've ever, ever seen. 
Yeah, and those aren't industries that I mean I've ever seen anything really have that sort of impact. But you, those are ones that you need people. You need good people in those fields in order for us to thrive. So it, it is it it is scary, and it, there is the chance that society and the way that these positions are being looked at needs to be modified too. And I think good leaders are always able to pivot when necessary are putting hopefully more and more resources into establishing culture first, because if that really is what is the biggest indication of being able to retain and attract the right people, well then a strong culture needs to be the hallmark of any of these service oriented uh, organizations. And so it, it, it makes me feel good that we're doing the right things and, and trying to focus on that, but there's a storm to weather it sounds like, and it sounds like you're reiterating that. Well, and, and that's right, Jeff. And there's also, uh, you know, in any organization, uh, certainly, certainly, certainly not just yours, but in any organization, when there is a cultural change, there's also always a little bit of cultural change resistance. You know, folks who, you know, the old way, the old style, the old approach has served them pretty well. So they cling on to that, like, you know, somebody, you know, did 40 years ago holding on to their IBM Selectric typewriter when a new PC was, you know, coming into the workplace. Uh, they cling to that old. So it takes a little bit of time. I mean, a, a cultural shift doesn't happen just instantaneously. It takes some time and it takes some warriors within an organization to drive it and make sure that it happens. And when you were talking earlier about the fact that it's not just it's not the leadership, it's not the executive team, it's it's the trickle down, it's the managers that need these skills. It's probably at times the peer RBTs, those more experienced RBTs that need to share their experience and feel like their voice is important to the organization and not be scared to speak up. So it's it's this whole idea of building it and allowing everybody to have a very specific role in ownership of the company culture. So what advice do you have for, for these managers that maybe are new to that role and are just learning it? You know, the, probably the biggest thing is, you know, and, and there's so many pressures and so many stresses on our managers in your particular industry, but to focus on the people side of the business, you know, the email is going to be there. The, the, the case review is always going to be there. The treatment plans are always going to be there. But focus on the people and really spend the time to communicate with them in a highly effective way. Uh, you know, I know, Jeff, it's redundant, but, but spend the time to get to know them. Prioritize that pri uh, providing of positive feedback. Make it as people-centric and not as technically-centric as you possibly can. That would be the biggest thing I would uh, uh, tell managers of any organization uh, at any level. It makes a lot of sense. If, if people are your number one resource, is that you better be treating them that way and really understanding what the pains that they have and how to make their job a better experience. And, and for the families, uh, you had mentioned is helping them to be more empowered and to be a part of that treatment team. Um, what is what is the advice that you'd provide to them is that right now is that they're going through some of these pains of, you know, there is attrition in this industry and in healthcare in general. It's not going to go away overnight. It, should they feel confident that they can ask 
their provider, what are you doing? How are you taking steps? What are your actionable items? Is that a voice that a recipient of care should be asking and should be demanding of their provider to know that these things are their priority? Uh, Jeff, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and to have those kinds of conversations with their provider and say, so, you know what, talk to me, tell me, tell me what you need from us. Tell me how we can partner into this with you. Uh, you know, what, what, what's funny, you know, it's such an interesting dichotomy. We do that with pediatricians. We often do that with teachers. We don't, for whatever reason, do that with behavioral therapists. You know, uh, you used the phrase uh, a while ago about, uh, you know, kind of being on an island. We assume that when they come over to the house, they're on an island, they're on their own, I leave them be. You know what? That's not the way it should be. It, it needs to be a partnership from session one all the way to session X, whatever session X looks like. But it is, you know, you'd never just let your small child go into a pediatrician's office by themselves. Same thing with behavioral therapy. We need to be there. We need to be connected to it. And the more we do that, the more we openly demonstrate support, you know, the more we openly celebrate those victories and, you know, praise our behavioral therapist. Boy, I tell you what, that, that's going to pay such huge dividends to the consistency of care, to the quality of care that we get on a regular daily basis. And the level of team engagement that comes out of that is it's insurmountable. I mean, that's just going to be the most impactful thing. Um, so I don't, I don't want to be selfish. I, I've been able to have a lot of the training and the experience of your knowledge. Where can others go to be able to get this? It's not just one industry. It's not just uh, specific organizations. This is all of the industries together are, are challenged with the same thing. And I want us to be able to build off that so that everybody's rising above. Where can people go to learn more about your leadership coaching and, and your books? Uh, our, all of our books are our three current uh, books, one of which is really uh, focused in on organizational culture. It's called Beyond Engagement. Uh, they're all available on Amazon. Uh, you can search by my name and you can find those books. And they also our website, uh, www.discover.com. Aegis, A-E-G-I-S dot com. Uh, that will give you a really broad based look at uh, the training, the coaching, uh, and the other resources that we offer other organizations. And I, I definitely recommend it. You come with such high regards from every single one of our employees that have had the opportunity to experience those trainings. So I hope people do reach out. And Tim, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to walk through this with us today, because it is a real issue and it, and it hits the organizations, it hits the managers, it hits the RBTs themselves and the families, and most importantly, it hits the children. And if we can all start wrapping our brains around it, the better for all of us, right? Uh, no doubt about it, Jeff. And, you know, and ultimately, when we understand why we're here and, and what we're supposed to be doing there, that should really drive home the importance for everybody, everybody, everybody in the equation. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. 
You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.